Well, it is so good to be with you this morning. Uh, This is a homecoming. Uh, For me, I have spent many, many uh, a day here in the seminary and in the chapel. Uh, I was a poor seminary student. My wife and I carpooled, meaning we had two cars, but we didn't have enough money to put gas in both of them always. And so she taught just south of town in the La Vega School District, and so she would drop me off at the seminary uh, in the morning and would pick me up late in the afternoon. And so this was home for me, uh, whether I was in class or not. Uh, I know, uh, because I have sat where you sat many times, uh, that chapel can be a marvelous experience. Here at the seminary, you have the opportunity to hear world-renowned scholars. I, I mean, people on the leading edge of thought. And then I know on some other Sunday, uh, Tuesdays, they invite old preachers to come back and talk to you. So I know that you are here today, one, because you love Truett Seminary. And you like being in chapel with your seminary family. And two, you love Jesus. And you know that he's worthy to be worshipped every day. So I count it a true honor to be with you, people who love Jesus, on this Tuesday morning. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Gracious Father, we give you thanks for today. Every day is indeed a gift from your hand. And so, Lord, we pray today that we would receive this gift with open arms. We pray today that the words of my mouth and the meditation of each of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I really did love seminary. Uh, Seminary was just the very first time in my life where I felt like I was free to explore all of the questions of our faith. I look around uh, at my professors uh, who are sitting here, and, and I was just one of those seminary nerds where just nothing could seem more Uh, fulfilling, more joy-giving than sitting in a class, seminar style, around a table, debating and arguing and discussing life, the Bible, and God. Prior to coming to seminary, I hadn't always been allowed to explore my faith in such a way. As was noted, I I went to a state school, a small state school just down the road from here, And there, I I started off computer science. I already had felt a call to ministry, but started off computer science and was just in the computer lab way too late every night, uh, working far too hard, knowing that I was going to go into the ministry. So I switched uh, my degree, like so many students, uh, to speech communication, which at A&M means you get a lot of electives. Uh, My wife would always laugh at the various classes I was taking. Uh, uh, Rhetoric of pop culture, uh, philosophy of love. I got to take all manner of different classes. Uh, But they also had religion classes, believe it or not, at Texas A&M. Now, I know that even when you go to a school like Baylor and you take a class in the religion department, it is not exactly like what they taught you in Sunday school growing up. Uh, Well, at A&M, you can imagine when the state of Texas is teaching you New Testament. It was not like Sunday school. Uh, I know you're thinking, Aggies can teach the New Testament. What? But... But, but still, for me, it was fascinating. It was the first time I had really ever been in a setting where they talked about the Bible in ways that actually 
made sense about how it all came together. I mean, the exact experiences you've had in different settings. And, and it was invigorating and yet challenging all at the same time. And so I, I did what any, I, I guess any young person would do. I went and talked to my college minister about it. I had questions and I, I wanted to put all that I was learning in a, a, a state of Texas religion class into the context of my life of faith. And I was so disappointed <laughs> when I went into his office and began talking to him about this. And his first response to me was, I really think you should drop that class. I've heard of other people taking that class and the questions it raises, they really just cause people trouble. I think it would be better for your faith if you drop that class and let us teach you about the Bible here at church. His non-answer was very unsatisfying to me. I grew up in a very conservative house. My, my parents, we grew up in Baptist churches, Southern Baptist churches my whole life. But they were not people who were afraid of questions. Uh, both of my parents are, are school teachers. And so uh, questions were not something to be dodged or ignored. They were to be explored. Questions are how we learn. And so uh, his non-answer uh, left me really looking uh, for somewhere else. Uh, that I could explore my questions. I quickly found myself leaving that church and going to another church where the pastor invited my questions and didn't push them away. I also found other folks and teachers and professors and writers and friends who saw asking questions as an important part of our faith journey, not something to be avoided at all cost. They were like the wise Professor Ardmeyer. In Wendell Berry's novel, Jaber Crow, if you haven't read it, read it. It's a great book. Uh, Dr. Ardmeyer is an old professor, a Bible professor, and the title character, Jaber, is a student at that point studying for the ministry. Uh, and he, he finds his way into the professor's office and says, I have a lot of questions. After a while, Professor Ardmeyer says, well, perhaps you would like to say what they are. <laughs> Jaber wasn't always quick to speak. Jaber finally begins to run down the list of the various questions that he has. He's very sure that Dr. Ardmeyer will, like all of the other people he's ever tried to talk to about this, uh, attempt to persuade him to keep quiet about his struggles. But Dr. Ardmeyer is not like other professors. He is compassionate and kind and thoughtful. And after much time, he says, You have been given questions to which you cannot be given answers. You will have to live them out, perhaps a little bit at a time. Jaber says, well, how long is that going to take? I don't know. It may take as long as you live, perhaps. That could take a long time, Jaber laments. Dr. Odenmire turns to him and says, I will tell you a further ministry, mystery. It may take even longer than that. As a pastor or minister, wherever life takes you in this calling, you will become a person people ask questions of. They will show up in your office with questions like these. They show up in my office all the time. Some of them have not learned to use Google yet. I, I get text on Saturday night. I, I have, I've been there 10 years now, so you can get away with things in 10 years that you couldn't get away with on year one. And I have one Sunday school teacher in particular who loves to email or text his pastor on Saturday evening some random Bible question. I'm not talking 
theological questions. I'm not talking about questions about how to be closer to Jesus. I'm talking about Bible trivia questions. And he will text these to me on Saturday night, and my stock response is now texting back Google. Uh, You can look it up. But you will get asked lots of other kinds of questions, deeper questions, the questions like Jaber has. And I've come to agree with Dr. Ardmeyer. The answer to some questions cannot be given. They have to be lived out a little bit at a time. Take the question that we find through a close reading of Acts chapter 12. I say a close reading because uh, most of us, when we come to this passage to preach a sermon, uh, we really skip over verses 1 through 4, and we go to the rest of the story. We go to the part where Peter is delivered angelically from jail. And it's easy to see why. That's a great story, isn't it? I mean, it's got all of this action. You've got Peter there sitting in the jail cell. You've got the angel punching him in the side saying, get up, buddy, it's time to go. Uh, You've got Peter showing up at the house of the the very prayer meeting where they're praying that he will be delivered. And Rhoda is so confused by his presence at the door that she slams the door shut on him. It, It is comic relief to no end. When she finally goes back to tell the church, we laugh at them because while they have been praying for this very thing, when God gives them the very thing they are asking for, they say, you must be crazy. It cannot be. We laugh at this story because it's so true to life. How often do we pray for things and then are shocked, shocked that God gives us what we ask for. They are much like the churches that I serve in West Texas who gather together for prayer, for rain. I grew up in East Texas. I have to hold my tongue now living in the desert that people get together and pray for rain. It seems an absurdity to me, but we do it anyway. We gather together and we pray for rain, but very few people bring umbrellas to such prayer meetings. Reading this second part of the story. It's easy to think that the point of this passage is perhaps to encourage us to pay better attention to the answer to our prayers in the world around us, and that might be part of it. But a closer reading of the text, I think, says there's more to this passage than just God answers our prayers. Because if we read verses 1 through 4, we see that sometimes he doesn't. We can probably show the folks in this church a little more sympathy if we realize that just probably a week before this prayer meeting, they had had another prayer meeting. A meeting in which they prayed just as earnestly, just as fervently. A meeting in which they had both the mixture of deep fear and great hope. A meeting at which there was another knock at the door. Only this time, instead of a deliverance, there was a voice who whispered in lament, You can stop praying. James is dead. In the light of the whole passage, I find myself being a little easier on the church in the New Testament. If this were the only place in the book of Acts where God vacillates between intervention and not intervening, we really might let the question slide of why does God answer some prayers but not others. But in the the whole book, God seems to be going back and forth between intervening and then just seeing how we'll do. Uh, For every uh, time that there is a deliverance from jail, uh, there is a flogging beforehand. If, If God was going to deliver them, why didn't he deliver them before the beating? For every sermon that leads to mass conversion, like Peter's at Pentecost, there is another sermon like Stephen's that leads to martyrdom and the persecution of the church. 
while Paul would get his own deliverance, miraculous escape from prison in Philippi, on another evening in Damascus, he would be surrounded by an angry mob. He would need a divine escort out of town. But what happens? At the very last second, almost out of desperation, his wily friends lower him out of a window so he can escape. On the one moment, miracles. The next, God seems remarkably absent. Again and again in the book of Acts, we are presented with the question, why does God sometimes answer our prayers and sometimes remain notably in the dark? It's a question that doesn't just show up in the Bible, right? It shows up also in our lives. In my last year of seminary here, we were going into the fall of that last year, my wife and I found out we were expecting our first child. Uh, We were notably excited. Uh, We were so thrilled about this. And then signs of trouble arose. And we prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed. And the tragedy came anyway. And I'd sat in class, and I'd had these academic discussions of why does God sometimes answer our prayers and sometimes not. And I'm a fairly logical guy. I, I get that we live in a broken world and sometimes it breaks right on top of us. But friends, I found myself asking the same questions that everyone else asked. Did we not pray hard enough? Did we not pray long enough? Uh, Did we not uh, pray fervently? Did we somehow uh, do something wrong? Did we not have enough faith? Was there some kind of sin in our life that got in the way of our prayers? I I found myself asking, why? Why did God act in such a way? Just this week in my own congregation, just last Tuesday, I was dropping off my children for school, when I got a phone number, a phone call from a church member, his name popped up on my phone, but it wasn't a church member on the other end. It was a sheriff's deputy. It was reporting that one of our 17-year-olds had been killed in a car accident on his way to school. 17 years old, plays the saxophone in the church orchestra. It's a good kid who will show up to orchestra practice at church. Sings in the youth choir. Beautiful, beautiful young man. That alone will leave you with plenty of questions, won't it? But add to that a cousin, almost the same age, who two months before was in almost the exact same kind of accident, a head-on collision, the only difference being she survived and he didn't. Two sisters, both people of faith, both love God, both are in church, both pray for their children every day. One prayer seemingly answered, Another not. If we're honest, we all ask these questions, don't we? If it's not our life, it's someone else's. When a tornado rages, why spare our house and uh, why spare one house and not the next? When cancer strikes, why is one person healed and another isn't? Uh, why sometimes intervene, but not always? Look, I'm not a Calvinist. Dr. Olson taught me well. I don't think God causes the bad things. But I'm also not a deist, right? Just because we're not Calvinists doesn't mean we aren't, God isn't in charge. I believe God is in charge. I believe God is capable. I believe that God intervenes sometimes. We celebrate those times. But man, it sure is frustrating when He doesn't. And it leaves us with deep, deep questions. 
And in those moments of questions, we have to hold on to what we've got. And, and what I've got is I believe that it doesn't mean there aren't answers to why things happen. It doesn't mean that our God does things without reason. It does not mean that our God is a capricious God. Our God loves us. But it does mean he's not always a God we easily understand. There's the passage that we quote often from Isaiah. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways. My ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts, your thoughts. That's a passage, really, that God is showing mercy to the wicked. And, and, and we have such a hard time when God shows mercy to wicked people who aren't named us uh, that God has to say, look, my ways are different than your ways. But, but it's a passage that I can think can be applied to all of life. There is so much we do not understand. Our pride resists those statements. I mean, we are educated people, right? We think deeply about faith. I want you to know I was almost embarrassed by my thoughts in the time of that miscarriage. You know, here I was a seminary student. I knew better than to question God. And yet, when it's existential, when the pain is deep, friends, you cannot help but ask these questions. The information age we live in deceives us into thinking that if we just give enough time and enough terabytes of memory, enough data crunching, that we can somehow discover an answer to any problem. But friends, some questions cannot be answered with a Google search. We have to live the questions. In living the question, I've discovered there are just some things I'm okay with not knowing. I'm actually really thrilled that God is smarter than I am. I've been a good student most of my life, uh, but there was a couple of years ago where I built a shed in my backyard, beautiful shed. I was so proud of it. I built it myself. And then one day I went in to get a rake, and the West Texas wind blew that shed door closed, and I realized there was, uh, you know, a mistake, a design flaw in the way I had built the shed. There was now no way for me to get out. (laughs) Friends, I need a God that is smarter than me. I need a God who understands the workings of the universe in ways that I'll never be able to comprehend. Just a few weeks ago, I was sitting in a hospital room with one of my more mm, smart alecky that's a nice way to say it, church members. Uh, he was having heart surgery, and the doctor came in and began to describe all she was going to, to do in the surgery. It was very technical sounding. She looked at him and said, do you understand what I'm going to do? And he looked at her and without missing a beat said, not at all. I don't understand a word of what you just said. Other than you're going to try to fix my heart, and I really hope you understand (laughs) what you just said. We get it, right? In life, I I need my doctor to know more about what she is doing than than what I know. In, In all sorts of areas of life, I need there to be people who know more than me, how much more so the God of all creation. I would, I would be terrified to live in a world where I understood God. It's not a very big God. And if we believe the testimony of scriptures, God does understand and know and care. That does mean that sometimes circumstances defy easy explanation. Prayers apparently go unanswered. We have to trust. We have to have faith that God hasn't all of the sudden become undependable. We have to figure out, we have to figure that he knows what he's doing, even if we do not. Does having that kind of trust mean, though, that we should go back and not ask why? I mean, like, like, like my college minister suggested so many years ago? I don't think so. 
Because while asking why may not ever lead us to the, the answer that satisfies our first inquiry, I do believe that asking why helps us to, to, to kind of stumble into new discoveries about who God is and who we are as His children. When I take a more reflective look at Acts chapter 12, I mean, not a quick reading, but a deep reading. I find myself asking, why does it upset me so much that, that James dies and Peter lives? Uh, for one thing, it upsets me because it's just, it's just unfair, right? I've got a brother growing up. We always wanted things to be fair, right? I mean, there was always the line drawn down the back seat of the car. There was always the measurement of the pieces of pie. But we humans are created in, almost instinctively to want things to be fair. And Acts chapter 12 does not seem fair. But if I'm even more honest, I don't think it's about fairness. I think it's really that the passage is so unpredictable. That there's just no way for us knowing why does James's road lead to where his road led. And why does Peter's lead to deliverance. You see, we live in a Christianity, a Western Christianity that thinks the Bible's main purpose is to help us figure out how to live in this world. We, we especially, in evangelicalism, live in a world that says we can use the Bible to chart successful paths for our ministry in our churches. And let's just be honest, chapter 12 doesn't help us do that. If I'm really blunt, at my worst, which is most days, I want to figure out how not to be James. I want to figure out how to be Peter. I want to know how to pray prayers that get answered. I want to know how to pray prayers that lead my ministry to success. I want to figure out how to pray prayers that, that cause my church to thrive. I want to figure out I want to figure out how to be like Peter and not James. All the while, God is hoping I'll be more like Jesus. Whichever path He leads. See, I'm always wanting to figure out how to get God on my side. All the while, God is beckoning me towards His. And when I really am honest with the passage, I recognize that Peter and James are both on God's side. Both were faithful to God, even though their paths took different turns. And even more importantly, God was faithful to both of them. He kept his promises in both of their lives because, see, God has never promised that he would keep us safe. He certainly has never promised us that we will have successful ministries. He has promised to redeem us. He has promised to use us in his ministry of redemption. And he did that with both. And when I really pay attention to the story, I'm reminded we humans are not the center of the story. We're not the main character. James isn't the main character of chapter 12. Peter isn't the main character of chapter 12. Herod isn't the main character of chapter 12, though I guarantee you Herod thought he was the main character. The chapter begins and ends with him. It begins with his cruelty and it ends with his death and this glorious little phrase in verse 24. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. You see, the main character of chapter 12 and really the book of Acts and really the whole story is the unhindered gospel of Jesus Christ. And the promise of this story is that no matter what happens to us, no matter what happens to our churches, no matter what happens to our ministries, the story of God's redeeming love will continue to be proclaimed until Christ comes again and all things are set right. Does this explain why James, lived, James dies and Peter's lives? 
Not at all. What it does do, however, is put both of their stories in the context of God's story. Peter's story is indeed a story of answered prayer, a story of what is to come when, when, when God's kingdom comes in full. And any time we see an answered prayer, friends, we should celebrate. We should celebrate the answer to that prayer as a foretaste of God's coming kingdom. And James' story, perhaps a last-ditch effort by the powers of this world to undo the plans of God. Painful You better believe it. But a reason to despair? Not at all. For instead of despairing, in it and every unanswered prayer, we are reminded that you and I are praying more from a temporary deliverance from a momentary danger. We are praying nothing short of God's kingdom Would you join me in a word of prayer? God, I thank you for every student in this room and the others they represent. I thank you for the fact that they are in a season of life where they are being encouraged to live the questions. Lord, I thank you for their professors who encourage such living. Lord, every professor I had at seminary here at Truett encouraged me to live the questions, continues to encourage me to live the questions. Lord, I pray that every student here, as they go forth and minister, will not only keep on living the questions, they will teach others how to do the same, that they will be willing to sit in the pain and the difficulties of this life so that people will put their faith not in cliches or or hollow answers, but they will put their faith in the one true God, the God who one day will set all things right. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.